When I was a student at Texas A&M in the early 2000s, it was not uncommon to have friends and acquaintances who would bump into former President George H.W. Bush around the campus. The Bush Library and school was there, and uh, the Bushes had an apartment uh, somewhere in the complex, and so I had a buddy who ran into President Bush in the bathroom of the rec center, of the student center. And then the pastor, one of the pastors of the church I was going to, he and his family had gone to visit the library one day, and they ran into George H.W. Bush and Mikhail Gorbachev in the lobby of the Bush Library. I think they got a picture of their son with them. These are, you know, cool encounters because we normally don't think in the the normal run of our lives we're going to bump into people who've had world historical significance, you know, who've been on the front pages of the paper and who've made decisions affecting millions of lives. We normally understand our lives to kind of have a much smaller sphere of of acquaintance, right? I wonder if that's a, a problem with our Christian lives. Not that we should have an overinflated view of ourselves, but if sometimes our view of what God has done for us and is doing is too small. That we lack a sense of the world-changing nature of what God is doing through Jesus Christ. And that, in a sense, because of our connection to Christ by faith, we are tied to events of cosmic importance, foundation-shaking events, events in which the dominions of the world will one day pass away and in some sense be entrusted to us, the saints of the Most High God. Daniel chapter 7 gives us a window into that kind of world-shaking nature of what God is doing through Christ. As we've been going through the book of Daniel, you may remember that last week, Pastor Tim taught us that Daniel 6 forms the kind of end to a a subsection of the book. It's the end of the the narrative section. So the stories you know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel in the lion's den, those are in chapters 1 through 6. Chapters 7 through 12 begin the exciting and alarming visionary parts of the book of Daniel. And that's where we begin today in chapter 7 with these visions that Daniel has of these, and sometimes very confusing, events. Chronologically, there's also some disruption in the book. So the first six chapters are roughly chronological. We begin at the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. We progress through that. We, We go to Belshazzar's reign, and then we have Darius, who succeeds the Babylonian Empire with the Persian Empire. Now in chapter 7, we're rewinding to the first year of Belshazzar's reign, uh, probably around the year of 550 B.C. So it's between, if you were kind of putting it in the book, chronologically, between chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Daniel. This chapter, chapter 7, is mostly taken up with a vision that Daniel has, but the vision itself is kind of divided into two parts. The first part, verses 1 through 14, is kind of the vision proper. It's full of the unexplained symbology. So Daniel takes us along with him, and we're kind of immersed in his experience as he sees these four beasts emerge from the sea. There's also a kind of cyclical quality to the vision. So we oscillate back and forth between a vision of the beasts and then the heavenly throne room, and then the beasts judged and a vision of the Son of Man. 
And then in verse 15, we, we come to a new part of the vision. We're, we're still kind of within it, but Daniel begins to tell us how he responds to what he saw. And in the vision, he approaches one of the, the heavenly courtiers who's standing at God's throne, and he asks this heavenly being for an interpretation. And so in the second half of the vision, within the vision, we get a kind of review and expansion, but also an explanation for the meaning of what Daniel sees. But here we find one of the great challenges of reading these visions. Daniel does receive interpretation, but not everything in the vision is interpreted as specifically as we would want. And Bible readers throughout history have had a lot of ideas and opinions about which precise historical kingdoms or figures the symbols in the vision refer to. Honestly, I think this may be a reason that some of us shy away from reading these parts of the Bible. There's so much of these, uh, the symbology that we just can't know for sure what it's referring to, and yet we meet Christians who feel very sure that they absolutely do know what these visions are referring to. And we find that churches have even divided over the interpretations of some of these passages. But I don't think we should divide over these interpretations, over who this beast is or, or that one is. Because there are truths in Daniel 7 that are vitally important for our theology and for the Christian life. And those things are clear in Daniel 7. That's what I want us to focus on today. These clear revelations of who God is and how we should live so that we can trust in him and endure in the midst of of our present evil age. These visions are not here to scare us or to drive us into wild speculations. These passages are here to help God's people endure, to help God's people trust in his power. And so here are the steps that Daniel 7 will lead us through, these clear truths that the Lord wants us to see. First, he wants us to see that we should not trust in earthly power. Don't trust in earthly power. Second, hope in the power of God. And third, God's power is revealed in the Son of Man. Don't trust in earthly power. Hope in the power of God, and God's power is revealed in the Son of Man. That's the message of Daniel 7 that we're going to walk through this morning. So let's read the entire chapter together and then look at this first point, don't trust in earthly power. You'll find this reading on pages 744 and 45 of the Bibles provided. Listen to God's word from Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise and devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. 
and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came, upon, they came up among them a li- another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The courts sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different than all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth, and that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions." As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. And he shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. This is God's word. 
Thanks be to God. The first point this passage teaches us is don't trust in earthly power. Daniel's visions begin with this scene of the four winds blowing and stirring up the great sea and four great or large beasts emerging from it. The image here is an image of creation. These four beasts are created beings. They emerge from the sea or the, later it says the earth in verse 17. These, are four great be- these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. The beasts are symbols of earthly power and authority. They likely do represent some specific kings, perhaps the succeeding kingdoms uh, of Babylon and, and beyond. But they also are symbolic for earthly power and authority, specifically earthly power and authority that's used against God and his people. They're called great beasts. So they represent human power at its height. For the first readers of Daniel, they would have thought of kingdoms like Persia and Greece and Rome. We could supply our own great powers from world history, perhaps even lumping in our own great power that our country enjoys. But the focus here is not on greatness in terms of goodness. It's focused on greatness in terms of the evil that these kingdoms do. They're described in turn, and there's almost a growing uh, terror to their imagery They devour and destroy and rule. And the fourth kingdom is the greatest in power and most evil and gets the most detailed description. In verse 7, Daniel says it's terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. Its ten horns, which are are not uh, just body parts, but in the vision they're kind of become animate. They're kings themselves. They have agency. Uh, We've seen seen ten used as a symbolic number of kind of ultimate power earlier. Or um, when when, uh, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that the Israelites are ten times greater in their ability to to interpret dreams than than the other men of his court. So ten may be a, a symbol of kind of ultimate great power. This little horn that's introduced is greater than the other horns. It has eyes of a man and mouth that speaks great things. And as the vision progresses, we see this mouth that speaks great things. Again, doesn't speak great good things, but great blasphemies against God and against his law and his people. Verse 25 tells us, again, this king is blasphemous. He persecutes the saints. And we see that just like Nebuchadnezzar overtook Jerusalem in chapter 1 because God gave it into his hand, that God will give the saints into the hand of this little horn. He will prevail over them. There's an image of, of great persecution endured by God's people. As with most of these prophecies, there seem to be near-term fulfillments that maybe what's envisioned here is some of the, the great travail that Israel experienced in the ensuing centuries, but also far-term fulfillments. The great, great persecutions that God's people will endure between Christ and his second coming. And we see that Daniel was alarmed in his spirit. His spirit was anxious. He was greatly disturbed. These were terrifying realities. I think this should, this should be all the more weighty considering what Daniel has lived through. He's experienced 
being deported to Babylon from his homeland. He's, he's at least heard of the fall of Jerusalem and the temple under Nebuchadnezzar's hand. He's seen the great arrogance of these evil rulers. He's now living in the midst of this foolish Belshazzar's ascendancy. He's seen all this and yet he's disturbed by these terrible things that are still to come for God's people. Consider also what this would have said to those exiles who followed Daniel and returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and the temple. They would note that Israel never regained the glory that it had under Solomon and David. From here on, it would be a weak city-state at the crossroads of other empires. How tempting it would have been for them to put their faith in Greece or Rome or some other political entity, hoping that perhaps if they allied themselves with one of these earthly powers, they could be sustained. But the Lord is warning his people here, do not trust in earthly power. We see this throughout the Psalms, Psalm 146. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. Earthly powers will rise They may achieve great power and be very impressive. We may be tempted to think, perhaps if we make the right political alliances, we can better protect and preserve the gospel. The Lord is disabusing us of that idea. Do not trust in earthly power. In some cases, trusting in earthly power will be obviously a dead end because of the persecution that these earthly powers will employ against God's people. We're told that this little horn will wear out the people of God. Earthly powers are serving their own gods. And so we shouldn't be surprised when they oppose those who worship the one true God. But we should also be comforted By Daniel 7, even hearing these great warnings of of persecution, because we, we don't have to assume that our suffering at the hands of these sinful men means that God has abandoned us. We're reminded that this kind of suffering, even extreme suffering, is is in God's plan. He predicted it. It serves a purpose. It may be that we share Daniel's alarm. We, we face soberly the evil that's coming or that some of us maybe endure, some of our brothers around the world are enduring now, but we do not lose heart. And the reason we do not lose heart is our second point, because we're called to trust in the power of God. When we trust in the power of God and we hope in God's power, we do not lose heart. The fact that earthly power is real and terrible in Daniel chapter 7 is not a call for us to build a bunker or to found a Christian nation. That's not where Daniel 7 points us anyway. That's because Daniel's vision also shows us, it shows him, that earthly power is limited by a greater power, by God's power. And so as Daniel's gazing at the terrifying strength on display and the fourth beast and the little horn, the, the blasphemy from the little horn is ringing in his ears. And he's given a vision of the ancient of days. 
Let's read verses 9 through 12 again. And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with the fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. We see God's power on display here. First, we see God in his brilliance, fire, whiteness, glory on display. In this vision of the throne room, God himself, the Ancient of Days, sits down on his throne in all of his glory and power. We see here that the God of the Israelites was not a local deity for Jerusalem. That may be the importance of the idea that his, his throne has wheels, which is a symbol that we also see in the first chapter of Ezekiel. These exiled prophets, when they saw God on his throne, they saw him on a mobile throne, a throne that could travel even to Babylon with an authority that extends over all the earth. We see here that this isn't just a, a static picture of a throne room, though. It's a throne room that's a courtroom. The court sits in judgment. The books are opened. The records of the wrongs done are laid bare. And so at that point, the vision turns back to the beasts. Again, with the, the blasphemy from the little horn being heard, and Daniel sees it's destroyed. For all its terror and boasting and power, the throne, the fire from God's throne apparently shoots out and consumes it. It's burned. It's judged. Throughout the vision, we get more repeated returns to this judgment scene. So in verse 21 and 22, Daniel says, I looked and, I, and this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Then again, in 25 and 26, this little horn shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. These Rulers, these earthly powers, enjoy times of apparent success. For a time, they look unstoppable. But they will utter their blasphemies. They will persecute the people of God. But a time will come for their judgment. They will be gone. God's righteous rule will ultimately win the day. God calls us to trust in his power. We not only see this picture of God's rule here, we, we saw it in what we read in Psalms 1 and 2. There we see the, the anointed one waging war against his enemies, pronouncing judgment upon them. We also see it in Jesus' interaction with Pilate when he's being brought to trial in John 19. Pilate thought it fit to remind Jesus that he had the power to crucify him. And Jesus said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. 
The Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans 13 that there's no authority except from God. Earthly powers exist only as God allows, and no one will escape his judgment. Again, these earthly powers we see around us can seem all-powerful to us, getting away with everything. Perhaps it's appropriate that we often are called to lament that the wicked prosper like the Psalms teaches us to do. But even as we lament, we remember this vision of Daniel. The Lord is enthroned. There are the books that will be opened. And his rule extends over all people, no matter how great or small. No matter what they rule over, those who rule will face God in judgment. Another way we see God's power spoken of here is is the emphasis on the eternal nature of God. He's called the Ancient of Days, and it's said that his kingdom has no end. So from eternity past to eternity future, God rules, and nothing can shake that. But when we look at the earthly rulers, they do have a beginning, and they do have an end. Their time is limited. There's an expiration date stamped upon them that God knows and God will enforce. Daniel uh, Daniel saw in verse 21 that the little horn made war with the saints and prevailed with them until, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints. In verse 25, the duration of the little horn's rule is for time, times, and half a time. A lot of ink has been spilled on exactly what those time, times, and half a times mean, and, and I don't know for sure. But at the very least, it tells us that the little horn's rule is limited. It will come to an end. God will judge it. For God's people, this tells us that we must have patience and endurance. God's justice comes on God's time and not ours. And many of us will live and die without ever seeing perfect justice. I mean, Daniel had that in his experience as well. He saw all these visions, but he didn't experience the reality of them. We could just name saint after saint in the Old Testament and saint after saint in history who lived faithfully and suffered unjustly. We trust in God's timing. We hope in God's power. Don't trust in earthly rulers. Don't trust in what you can see. Hope in the power of God. It's by hope in God's power that we can live faithfully in this present evil age. But that leads us to ask, what do we mean when we say God's power? Is this just something far away, you know, something for the very end of history, sort of something very vague and far off in our minds? Are we simply left to wait and hope that the bad guys will get what's coming to them in the end? How can we see God's power at work? Well, that's the subject of our last point. God's power is revealed in the Son of Man. At the end of the first part of this chapter, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we're introduced to this figure described as one like a son of man. As we look carefully at who this is, and we sort of examine the data about him, we look at Daniel and later biblical interpretation, it's very clear that the Son of Man is Christ Jesus our Lord. 
The one like a son of man is introduced just a few verses after we meet the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days brings judgment on the evil rulers of the world. And immediately after that, we see this one like the son of man revealed. So let's read verses 13 and 14 again. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." I want to just present a few arguments for, for why this figure, the Son of Man, is the Christ. And the first argument is that we see that this figure is both divine and human. Unlike the Son of Man, this, unlike the beast, the Son of Man does not originate from the earth or the sea. We do not see him being created. He's a heavenly being. Crucially, he comes on the clouds and he's presented to the Ancient of Days. Writing on the clouds is something in Scripture that God does. So Isaiah 19, verse 1. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift chariot. So Yahweh himself is riding on a swift chariot. And Psalm 104 begins talking about, O Lord, my God, you are very great. In verse 3, it says, He makes the clouds his chariot. So we see someone riding on the clouds in the Bible it's a picture of God. That's what God does. So the fact that the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven shows us his divine being. We also see his divinity in the way that these thousands serve him later in the text. So he's divine, but he's also human, because that's the ordinary meaning of the phrase Son of Man. When we see that phrase used in Scripture, it's used of a person. It's, a, it's his way of describing a person. We see that in Daniel 7, in the way the Son of Man is not described in any beastly language, he, he's a man. He's not a twisted human figure corrupted by sinful power, but simply one like a Son of Man, indicating a sinless Son of Man. So he's not like the wicked and violent kings who emerged from the earth, but he is a king. Notice that he's the one king granted an audience with the Ancient of Days. He's not dragged before God by the collar to be judged in the presence of the Ancient of Days. But according to verse 13, he's presented before him. A vision of like royal court manners. He gets an official introduction. He's got the right authorization to be here. He can enter into God's heavenly courtroom. And when he comes before God, he's given dominion and glory and a kingdom. This is the same picture that we see of Christ. Christ is the, the Son of God who became man and took on flesh. And he suffered and died faithfully, obedient to his Father. And he was raised from the dead and exalted, crowned, given the kingdom at God's right hand. The mystery of the divine and human figure is still very hidden in Daniel 7. But the big signposts are there. We're to put our hope in God's power because God's power is revealed in this unique God-man, the one like a son of man. Second argument for why this is the Christ is because he rules over God's everlasting kingdom. We see this in uh, the way that the son of man's kingdom is spoken of, that it has no end, that it will not pass away in verse 14. 
It's an everlasting dominion. This is what God says about the Son of Man's kingdom in Daniel chapter 7. But if you recall, there was another vision in Daniel, another four-kingdom vision in Daniel, and that vision ended with the, the kingdom of God being established, and that kingdom was also an everlasting kingdom. So we read in Daniel 2 that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that will not be destroyed. It stands forever. And the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is given rulership over that kingdom. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 is the Christ, the King over God's eternal kingdom. Those are a couple of lines of evidence from Daniel. There's just one more line of evidence that I want to give you. Perhaps this will seal the deal. Jesus said he was the Son of Man. Jesus' favorite title for himself is the Son of Man in the Gospels. But he doesn't just use this as a vague term to mean human being. He connects this explicitly to Daniel chapter 7. So in Matthew 25, 31, he says, When the Son of Man comes in glory and the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. One of these thrones that's set up there is for the Son of Man. In 26, Matthew 26, 64, Jesus says, From now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus understood himself to be this glorious Son of Man that we're introduced to here in Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is none other than Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's important that we grasp this because without this truth, we cannot correctly understand or apply Daniel chapter 7. Because the thrust of Daniel 7 is that the hope for the saints of God is the power of God, which is revealed in the Son of Man. The hope for the saints, our hope, the only hope we have, is the revelation of the Son of Man, the coming of Jesus Christ. This is something that we've yet to emphasize, but hopefully you notice as we read, throughout the chapter, the glory and blessedness of God's people comes when God exercises his power for them. So when God judges the wicked fourth beast and the little horn, he gives the kingdom to his saints. Our blessedness is tied to God's judgment of these evil ones. The saints are saved and blessed through God's judgment of sin and evil. And how does God exercise his power in judgment? Through the exaltation of the Son of Man, the dominion and reign and power of the Son of Man. God reveals his power through this human king the human and divine Son of Man, Christ Jesus our Lord. The saints, those who trust in Christ, are blessed when Christ comes. I mean, using that term coming very intentionally for all of its wonderful ambiguity, because it refers to both Christ's coming, being born of a virgin and dying, and his coming at the end of history. Imagine how this would have impacted the Israelites who first read Daniel. This call to keep hoping in the promise of God and looking for the coming of the Son of Man. They were to live like Mary, the mother of Christ, did, who greeted the words of, of Gabriel with a song, praising God for raising up a horn of salvation. Or, or think of Zechariah or Simeon in Luke 1 and 2, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Over the centuries, again, Jerusalem finds itself at the crossroads of conquest, First the rise of Alexander the Great and then his successors and then the empire and dictators of Rome. 
Through it all, they were not to turn to these kings. They were not to trust in those sons of men. There's no salvation in those sons of men. They were to keep the faith that one like a son of man would come, one who would possess the kingdom. He was not like these violent kings. They were to trust in the promise of the prophet Isaiah that God would once again bring comfort, comfort to his people, that he would deliver them from their sins. They were to believe that God would give his people through rest through the Messiah. Some, like Simeon and Anna, were alive at the right time, and they greeted the consolation of Israel, the Son of Man. Now we have the blessing on living on the other side of Christ's coming than the Jews in exile or those who return to Jerusalem. So what does hope in the coming Son of Man mean for us? We should admit that in Daniel, we really only read about the exaltation of the Son. We read about him in his glory, right? His eternal dominion. He's spoken of in these glorious ways, coming on the clouds, the everlasting kingdoms given to him. But we can't ignore that the New Testament tells us how the Son of Man is glorified. Jesus talks about the exaltation of the Son of Man in a very interesting way in John chapter 3. We think of John chapter 3 because of you must be born again, and then for John 3.16, right? But sandwiched in the middle, Jesus says to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up, as Moses exalted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The exaltation of the Son of Man was first the exaltation onto the cross. So eternal life with God does not come by a political revolution led by King Jesus. The glorious Son of Man became a man and died before he rose from the dead and was exalted to God's right hand. He died for our sin. And here's another sort of hidden truth of Daniel 7. It's not just the four beasts who deserve judgment, but all peoples of the earth. The pride and rebellion that marked Nebuchadnezzar, that marked Belshazzar and Darius and others, their pride and rebellion maybe comes to full flower in these evil kingdoms, but it's present in all of our hearts. We all deserve God's judgment. And it's only because our sins have been judged in Christ on the cross that we can receive God's kingdom and be saved, that we can receive eternal life. So our hope does not arrive first and foremost when the evil kings of the world are judged. Our hope is secure because the righteous king was judged in our place. Jesus took our place on the cross. We can be forgiven of our sins by trusting that God poured out his judgment for, for our sins on Christ, on the cross. I keep saying we and our because I believe that most of us here are Christians, but it would be better to use Jesus' language from John 3. Whoever believes in him is saved. This is the hope of whoever believes in him. The saints of the Most High in Daniel are those who believe in the work of the Son of Man who trust in the rule and reign of the Son of Man. Those who believe 
in Christ and his work are saved by him. And so that should lead us all to ask, do I believe in the Son of Man? Do I admit that I'm a rebel against God and deserve God's judgment? And do I confess that my only hope is for the divine Son to become the Son of Man for my sake and pay the price my sin deserves on the cross? No earthly power can save you. Daniel lays that bare for us, doesn't he? Where do all the earthly powers end up? Only the Son of Man's kingdom stands forever. Only by faith in Christ's work can we receive eternal life and become members of his kingdom. To be part of Christ's kingdom, that eternal kingdom, to have life forever with God, you must believe in his work on the cross for your salvation. The Son of Man came to exercise God's rule and to bless the saints. And the book of Daniel helps us to see that Christ's coming is about more than us being saved as individuals. It is that. But Christ's coming is the way God exercises his rule over the whole world. And Christ's salvation is the salvation for all the peoples of the earth. Verse 14 says that. He came that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And so not only is our hope in the coming of the Son, so is the hope for all people. Anyone who would have faith will be saved by this coming. And this drives the church's mission. God's left the church on earth to preach Christ's coming to all peoples. To preach that Christ has come. He's come to save. And he's come to save inclusively. People from every tribe and tongue. This is not an Israelite salvation. It's not a Babylonian salvation. But even men like Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon can repent and believe and find hope. And so today, for the church to live, hoping in the power of God revealed in the Son of Man, is to spread the gospel to all nations. If we would be faithful to, to live in light of Daniel 7, we must be a people who proclaim this truth, The Son of Man is coming to save to people from all over the world. Because we know that Scripture teaches us that without faith in Christ, people without Christ are going to hell. And so we proclaim the gospel. We seek to work and use our money to see churches planted all over the world. And we do this because ultimately it's God's work. If it's left to ourselves, we knew we couldn't accomplish it. But this is why Jesus came. The world-shaking thing is that God has sent his Son into the world to save sinners. And he's blessed us with the privilege of joining him in the task. And so if we believe in the coming of the Son of Man, we should wholeheartedly join God in his work, doing what he called us to do, proclaiming the gospel, making disciples of people from every tribe, tongue, and language. This is what I meant at the beginning when I said perhaps our view of things is too small. Perhaps we need to see that God has a a role for us, even a a church here of of 40-some-odd people, to play in seeing the foundations of worldly power shaken to their core by the proclamation of the coming of the Son of Man to die for sinners. So we can ask ourselves, do we have a heart for the gospel and the spread of the gospel among all people the way that God does? 
Do we have a heart to see God's word proclaimed? How is that showing up in your prayer life? We try to model that in our pastoral prayers, praying for missionaries and churches around the globe that are preaching the gospel. You might give some time this week to to thinking about God's love for the world through the gospel. He sent his son that whoever believes in him should have eternal life, no matter what language they speak. The son of Maine came to exercise this rule and reign. We hope we live by faith in the coming Son of Man. One of the confusing things about biblical prophecy is that it often represents a very simple picture, but the fulfillment is more complex. We see an example of that even within our own chapter. Look at verses 17 and 18. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. That is Daniel 7. Four, four beasts arise, the saints of the Most High God possess it. That's it. But we also know it's more complex, right? It gets revealed in more complex ways. We, we hear nothing here of a little horn or persecuting the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, judgment. But there, in a nutshell, we have the, the prophecy presented. But then it gets more complex. And that's what I was saying earlier. The Son of Man comes, He has come, and He is coming again. We catch a glimpse of this in Acts 1, verses 9 and 10. Jesus has just spoken his last words to the apostles, and he ascends into heaven. He says, when he had said these things, as the disciples were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of sight. And while they were gazing up into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven... We'll come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We await the sun coming in the clouds. He will come the same way. He's coming again. He's at the Father's right hand, exalted in glory. And yet a day is coming when that exaltation of Jesus will be visible to everybody. Such that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father. So you could say that we have a double hope. We live in hope because Christ has come. Our sins have been paid for. He's taken away our guilt and shame. And he's risen from the grave and he's ascended. Our hope is in heaven with him right now for all that he's done. And we live in hope for what he will do. He will come once again riding on the clouds of heaven. He will bring final judgment. He will open his books. Will your name be found in his book of life? We live in the hope of his glory. The glory of the saints is wrapped up in the exalted Son of Man. It is true now, and it is true for the future. I don't think Daniel 7 gives us exact predictions for how all of these things will come to be. We're not given this so that we can read in our history books or our newspapers and say for sure, well, this was the little horn. Daniel 7 was given so that we will endure in faith with our eyes fixed on the coming of the Son of Man. Let's pray.
Our Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you that you came for us. We pray that you grant us faith, that you would help us to fix our eyes upon you. We pray that we will endure faithfully until you come again. Give us faith and protect us from faith in the wrong things. Keep us from worshiping or trusting in earthly power. Help us to see through the vanity of the things this world offers and to rest in your love and live in obedience to you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.